0: You are listening to a History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information and to access hundreds of podcasts, go to historyhub.ie. This podcast series features UCD graduate Sean Murray discussing the development of children's comics after the Second World War, with a particular focus on boys' adventure comics from the 1950s and 60s. This is the final podcast of the series, entitled Myth, War, and the Comics. It is generally accepted by scholars over a wide span of years that all societies have a need for myths, which enables them to function. It helps them to make sense of their collective selves and is particularly necessary in the aftermath of a great collective trauma suffered by a society, such as the Second World War. It is important to note that myth does not imply falsehood or that it is necessarily totally fabricated. In fact, it can be argued that myth and truth are not mutually exclusive, that myth contains many elements of truth and is probably best viewed as a particular explanation and interpretation of events rather than as any cleverly designed falsification of reality. At the close of World War II, Britain, though it had won the war, was a country marked by an utter transformation of its physical and mental landscape, with run-down cities and people who were underfed, badly clothed, depressed, and physically exhausted. They had been worn down by arguably the worst war in the nation's history, one in which no family can have been left untouched. Over 400,000 people had been killed as a result of the war, many of them civilians, and as many more had been injured or wounded. Millions had been conscripted into the armed services or war-related industries. While more people died in World War I, there had not been the same total mobilisation of the country or the physical devastation of the air war, and the country had not found itself in 1918 in the bankrupt condition it found itself in 1945. While the war had ended, Britain's circumstances were slow to improve. Rationing was worse and millions of ex-servicemen returning home created a massive housing crisis. Returning ex-servicemen also generated very real family crises in millions of households as they struggled to deal with reintegration into civilian life. While the war had ended, Britain's circumstances were slow to improve. Rationing was worse and millions of ex-servicemen returning home created a massive housing crisis. Returning ex servicemen also generated very real family crises in millions of households as they struggled to deal with reintegration into civilian life. There was a parallel struggle to make sense of what had happened, of the sacrifices made and the hardship endured. In this climate, a real and lasting national story emerged, one which endures to this day, and what is now identified as Britain's national myth of the Second World War was created. This was based on a sort of collusion between government and the people to produce an agreed explanation of events, an explanation which was necessary for the people of Britain and their government to understand what they had endured to survive the war and what they had to do now to survive the peace. This was not unique to Britain and mythology was essential in enabling nations across the world to recover from the disaster of World War II. Britain's myth is not the imposition of a falsehood on reality. It is one based on reality itself, and that is why it has survived. It's skewed towards the early years of the war, because that's what suits Britain's self-perception. Britain's myth is not the imposition of a falsehood on reality. It's one based on reality itself, and that's why it has survived. It's skewed towards the early years of the war, because that's what suits Britain's self-perception. Resolute in crisis, and at its best when alone, gallantly fighting against the odds. This myth has been nurtured ever since through a diet of films, books... TV series, comics and every sort of media and it continues to endure today. It has been observed that this myth is a critically important part of the British national memory of World War II, used to describe the desire of humans to ascertain who and what they are. Its origins are in the war itself and it has been recreated and reinforced many times, particularly by Churchill's memoirs and can be difficult to undermine. Various elements of the myth have been traced to their origins during the war itself, and many smaller myths contribute to the whole. The people's war element of the myth can be traced to the wartime work of the Ministry of Information, particularly during the Blitz, when the idea that we are all in it together took root. In another element from the end of 1940, a determined effort was made by the British government to shape the public's view of prisoner of war life behind the wire of the POW camps. With the widely distributed images of smiling stiff upper-limbed inmates which helped generate the prevailing myth's view of prisoners of war as cheerful optimistic chaps always fooling the germans and always trying to escape the reality particularly for prisoners of the japanese was very different the core of the myth then frames world war ii as a people's war in which britain and britain alone with its people united together had stood against a deep evil And it saved the world in a triumph against the odds. It was a war in which British courage and ingenuity triumphed. There is no place for allies in this telling of the war. American and Empire troops are tolerated just about, but in support roles. The Russians, who did most of the dying, scarcely feature. While it is a British myth, what has been described as a prideful sense of British nationhood, for some it is really about Englishness. In which popular opinion can be summed up as the Second World War proved England's importance to the world, and no one must be allowed to forget it. World War II stories emerged in the world of comics at a time when the basic foundations of the myth were firmly in place. These stories became prolific reinforcers to a number of aspects of the myth, specifically those of the People's War, resourcefulness, and making the most of little as well as the extent to which special forces, secret agents and spies were a feature of nurturing the myth. It has been argued that special forces, commandos and prisoner of war escape stories were the most influential vehicles for passing on British popular history of World War II. The comics were thorough in ensuring that every facet of the war and every theatre of the war that Britain had participated in were featured, adding to the totality of the idea of Britain's winning of the war. Thompson's comics portrayed a particular version of the People's War by focusing exclusively on stories about male, lower middle class and working class characters. Officers and senior brass were frequently shown as being out of touch and it took ordinary soldiers to show them how to get things done. The long-running character Sergeant Braddock, for example, couldn't stand petty rules and regulations and over his 30 years in the comics he was frequently in trouble for standing up to incompetent superior officers. Although the national myth in itself did not marginalise women, they are absent from the comics. While the women's auxiliary services and the factories gave women a role in the war beyond that that of just keeping the nation going, it was not a frontline fighting role, at least not in the comics, and with the exception of a very small number of stories set on the home front, the focus of the comics coverage was on fighting. This male-centred approach should not be too surprising, as the comics' primary target audience was a male one. The very first World War II story in a Thompson title in Rover in August 1950 set the tone for other stories that would follow. Entitled The Phantom Flyer, it described itself as the great story of that gallant band of RAF flyers who saved Britain from extinction in 1940. From the start then, this played to the origins of the People's War Strand of the Myth, located in the Battle of Britain and the Blitz of 1940-41. It was a triumph against adversity, a story about the few against the many, and a triumph of the ordinary man. The comics did not dwell on the fact that the Battle of Britain pilots, as well as most other British pilots, were officers. While the Battle of Britain and the Blitz were not to feature strongly thereafter, perhaps in about a dozen stories in seven titles over 16 years, flying stories did feature constantly and were situated in virtually every theatre of war Britain was active in. The Flyers were rarely featured as officers and the most ubiquitous Sergeant Matt Braddock refused to be promoted above this rank. Army stories constituted just over half of the war stories, air under just a third and Navy the balance, reflecting the personnel breakdown in the war. Non-commissioned officers and more usually ordinary enlisted men were almost always the heroes of Army and Royal Navy stories. In many ways, they represented the underlying character strengths of all Britons, not just the working classes from whom they were predominantly drawn. Crackerjack, the tank killer, Ghost Gun of the Desert War, which ran in Hotspur from March 1955, illustrates a number of these themes. The heroes were a group of enlisted men under the command of a sergeant. They had been left behind by the German advance in North Africa and were operating behind the enemy lines performing impossible feats of heroism against the enemy. These left-behind and behind-the-lines themes were common features of the comics, and as well as illustrating the people's war concept, they were also a strain of the special forces theme. And the story is also consistent with the the winning-against-the-odds concept. A similar example is The Floating Coffin, which appeared in Victor in 1964 and contains the same themes, featuring a group of naval ratings using a landing craft to fight against the Japanese after they had been left behind in New Guinea following the Japanese advance in 1942. Another popular theme was the use of unsuitable or non-fighting equipment to make and do and win with inferior resources. Bring him back Barrett first appeared in Wizard in 1960 and later in Hornet in 1965. Set in North Africa, Barrett is an aircraft mechanic with the job of finding planes which had been shot down and patching them up to fight again. Similar stories appeared in Hotspur in 1959 and in 1964. Battling Bulldozers appeared in 10 issues of Rover in 1957 and the clue is in the name. It featured the exploits of bulldozer drivers in New Guinea. Continuing with this theme of make and do, individual heroes were usually enlisted men. They were often non-combatant soldiers who had to fight or servicemen who were able to achieve spectacular results with unusual or relatively ordinary weapons. Non-combatant soldiers included cooks in the 1960 story Never Put a Cook in a Stew, a 1955 story in which a group of army doctors had to save themselves from the jungle and the Japanese army, and a 1957 story about a group of army vets retreating through Burma. Private Ted Carter appeared in a story called The Dragon's Breath, which ran in Rover in 1957 and later in Victor in 1965. Private Carter couldn't shoot, he couldn't use a rifle properly, but he was deadly with a flamethrower. This story also illustrates another aspect of the myth, namely the sanitization or normalisation of extreme violence through the sanctioning and even glamorization of a particularly savage and gruesome weapon such as the flamethrower a weapon whose use is now restricted under international law. Another story in Hotspur in 1964 featured private Grant's exploits with hand grenades. and The story also illustrates another aspect of all the comics, namely their ability to promote the People's War and to humanise it through the use of names and nicknames to promote the heroes. Thus we have Sergeant Blake of the Iron Fists in Wizard in 1954, Mulligan's Misfits in Rover and Adventure in 1961, Sniper Denison in Victor in nineteen sixty four, Deep Sea Delaney in Hotspur in nineteen fifty nine, and of course the ubiquitous S- sergeant Matt Braddock. An important strand of the People's War theme is the cheerful acceptance of hardships and the absence of any questioning of the war itself. In contrast to the First World War, there was no significant anti war movement in Britain during the war, and any opposition there was to the war actually declined after 1939. This was reflected in the comics in a number of ways. Servicemen in the stories were always happy to fight on, and there was never any suggestion of giving up or surrendering. This is demonstrated in the number of behind the lines stories which appeared in all titles. These were particularly prevalent in the North African and Far Eastern campaigns. So in addition to illustrating other aspects of the myth, there were stories such as The Forgotten Fourteenth, set in Burma in Victor in 1961, Force Viper, also in the Far East, in Hornet in 1964, and Silent Raiders, set in North Africa in Adventure in 1956. These were all stories of ordinary soldiers left behind after a British retreat who had never considered any other course of action but fighting on behind the lines. The use of humour in the stories, while not outright as in comic strips, played to the idea of cheerfulness. Often this was in the sense of putting one over, particularly on the Germans, winning by crafty means, but also involving the cheerful chappy, who was as good at fighting as he was at fooling officers and getting extra comforts for himself and his mates. So we had, uh, there was a soldier about crafty private Cox in North Africa in Victor in 1963. Tough Duff, he fights with his boots clean, in Rover and Wizard in 1965. Tucker Turner, a lighthearted story set in Burma in Victor in 1962. And the plain with the waggly tail, set in the Far East, was in Wizard in 1960. A small number of Homefront stories appeared that contributed to the normalisation of the war. Although some of the military stories were based in Britain, there were some specifically non-military stories as well. One example was a story about two orphaned boys who were making their way in wartime London, a concept that had particular appeal to 12- to 16-year-old boys. Another story was about wartime orphan Arnold Tabbs that appeared in Wizard in 1955 and was introduced with the description the kind of wartime scene your mum and dad may remember. It was clear that readers were not expected to have first-hand knowledge of the war and details like this added a layer of authenticity to the storyline. The comics excelled in the use of special forces and commandos as well as spies, secret weapons and secret victories. These special forces and commandos, while an elite in the armed forces, were not from a class elite in society. They were ordinary soldiers able to do special things in times of war. Spies, secret weapons and secret victories had special appeal to teenage boys. They represented the continuation of a long tradition in comics which had previously used Bolshevik spies or the agents of mysterious unspecified powers in their stories. This loose genre of special forces, behind-the-lines fighters and spies secret agents constituted a substantial proportion of the stories, up to as much as half of all the stories about the war. In the word of the comics, as with the myth, only Britain won the war. It has been argued that much of the myth more accurately represents English rather than British cultural identity, and there is some evidence in the comics to support this argument. For example, the use of what might be considered English as opposed to Welsh or Scottish surnames used for their heroes. Very few non-British combatants appear in these stories, and there are no references at all to the thousands of American servicemen stationed in Britain in the build-up to D-Day. An important aspect of the comics' boosting of the idea that Britain won the war was their ability to turn defeat into victory, which was particularly evident in the coverage of the war in the Far East in the comics. This coverage was substantial, with typically 20-40% to of the war stories devoted to the Far East. In reality, the Far East theatre was a disaster for the British, with their 1942 retreat from Burma particularly shameful. It was overwhelming American military power that ultimately defeated Japan. Yet in the world of the comics, it was Britain, it can be argued, that won the war against the Japanese. The same slant is given to the Norway campaign of 1940, another disastrous campaign for the British. Five stories devoted to the Norwegian campaign appeared from 1954 to 1965 and were all about men who fought on behind the lines after the British withdrew. The 11-year spread of their appearance and the range of titles they appeared in indicates this as a normal type of view of the Norwegian campaign. Other British defeats in Europe that featured as heroic events in the comics were Crete, Greece and the attack on the bridge at Arnhem in 1944. This ability to turn defeat into victory was an important reinforcement of the idea that Britain won the war alone. In the totality of the presentation, the comics blurred fact and fiction, either by accident or design. This added a veneer of truth to all aspects of their presentations of the myth but particularly it can be suggested to that of Britain winning the war alone. The personal diary of Nick Waring's story, which I have mentioned previously, illustrates this point, but there are numerous other examples of the the now-the-secret-story-can-be-told variety. The use of genuine stories added to this veneer. Victor, from its launch in 1961, was perhaps the most influential of these, with its front and back cover colour stories about real Victoria Cross winners and of real events that had taken place in the war. An example is its April 1963 front and back cover on the defence of Malta. However, there were many other examples across all the titles from before then. These were usually short, comic strip-style pieces which featured individual acts of heroism, focused on specific pieces of fighting equipment, or highlighted the history of particular regiments. These often ran as serials, such as Heroes of the Air War, in Rover in 1959, and History of the Squadrons, a series of strips, also in Rover in 1951. While comics didn't lead the development of the British myths surrounding World War II, there can be little doubt they played an important role in developing and reinforcing certain aspects of them, particularly the ideas of the People's War and the idea that Britain alone won the war. Between 1950 and 1965, over 6.5 million boys aged 12 to 16 were exposed to these stories, rising to over 13.5 million in the 30 years up to 1980. This amounts to around 35% of the male population of Britain today. whose primary knowledge of the war was gained through its reworking in the comics, rather than one gained by direct experience. It is perhaps this reworking, the dominance of the narrative of World War II, that helps deepen the continued fascination with the war in Britain today. Many scholars note the endless rerunning of World War II through media in every possible way. The success of recent films such as last year's Dunkirk and this year's Darkest Hour are just the most recent manifestations of this. This narrative has provided Britain with a security blanket in a changing world, with nearly every international crisis involving Britain, including Brexit, compared to or seen through the lens of the Second World War. Thanks for listening to this History Hub podcast. Visit historyhub.ie to find even more content. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and many other podcasting apps, such as Podcast Republic. Please rate and review our channel as it helps others to find out about our work.